And good afternoon. I am back. And today I have Tanya Del Rio, candidate for District 1 Boston City Council. Tanya, how's it going? Hi, Evan. It's going great. Spring is here. It's warming up. Our volunteers are out. We are having a good time. Fantastic. I'm doing okay. And I wanted to have this interview and I will also be interviewing um, your competitor and these are going to air back to back weeks because it dawned on me that I had no idea when the election was taking place. And generally, it might be an arrogant statement, but if I am unaware of when an election is happening, it's very difficult to assume that people who don't spend hours a day reading about this stuff will be. And so let's get it out of the way right at the top. When is the election? Thank you for that. And you're not alone, Evan. A lot of people that we've been talking to aren't aware. So date, May 3rd. The polls open at 7 a.m. on May 3rd. They close at 8 p.m. on May 3rd. You're noticing that I'm saying that date a lot because we want to make sure that we have as broad and as wide participation as we can. The more people participate in this decision, the better decision we are going to collectively make. And uh, that's what we all are striving for, making our democracy stronger. And that starts at the local level. So everyone, please, if you're listening, get out and vote. Make your voices heard on May 3rd. Absolutely. And I believe in November when we had the general election, I think overall the voting turnout was around 30 percent. Don't necessarily quote me on that. And I know historically special elections are much, much lower to even that number. Mm -hmm. And so actually one other question I had uh, before we switch it to you is, will they be allowing mail-in ballots for this special election or is it, or is there early voting or is it just May 3rd, that's it? We don't know yet. I think the only, the only for certain we have right now is absentee ballots. So you can request an absentee ballot if you're not gonna be in town. I don't think mail-in voting is gonna be allowed. Um, or at least not that we've heard. And that's unfortunate, right? Like, I think we need to pass voter um, voter protection laws in Massachusetts, like same-day voting reg registration, like uh, permanent early voting and mail-in voting measures urgently because people have lives and not everyone can get off work on a Tuesday, you know, get childcare on a Tuesday to come out and vote. People have different schedules, different lives, and we need to just make it easier for people to participate in the democratic process. Um, in special elections, as you said, they're not the best for that. hundred mm -hmm. percent. And so now let's uh, switch the focus on the election to uh, yourself. And so um, why don't you take um, a few minutes, uh, just tell us about yourself, um, where uh, did you grow up, what brought you to Boston, and you certainly have um, a very compelling story of when you uh, started living in Boston, involving like uh, immigration, paperwork changes, a job in yes. Boston City, uh, Paul, so why don't you just uh, take over, kind of give us that basic narrative, please. Okay, sure. Um, I'm first and foremost a BPS mom, mom of two. I have a six-year-old at the Alighieri Montessori BPS in East Boston and a two-and-a-half-year-old that hopefully will be in K-0 uh, next year. I'm an immigrant originally from Mexico City, woman of color, and uh, also a leader with proven results in the community and in city government. And um, I first came to Massachusetts for graduate school, like many people do. I got my master's in public policy at the Kennedy School. And um, after I graduated, I went to work at the Consulate of Mexico in Boston, downtown. I had previously been working with the government of Mexico to protect immigrants abroad from all sorts of situations that can happen. And uh, I continued that work right after graduation. So at the consulate of Mexico, I, you know, if you were a Mexican immigrant or, or even a tourist that was in trouble, um, I would come in and kind of handle your case. And that involved simple things like you lost your passport, we would replace it, to you were incarcerated uh, in immigration detention, or, you know, you passed away, like I was the person making the phone call to your family, trying to help you get, um, um, trying to help them get your body back home, or, you know, making sure your rights were respected in immigration detention centers, or, or in prison. And so it's, it's just really emotional and tough work, you have to understand people's humanity and be with them in what could be the hardest moment in if, if their lives, it gives you a lot of empathy and I think that's going to allow me you know to lead with authenticity and heart because I've been with people and sometimes you can't solve their problems but being there with them and like I said seeing their humanity and and bringing that vulnerability that you can have with them 
is is just as important as being able to solve a problem although although when you can solve their problem you should and it's a very rewarding feeling when you can do that and um, I was working there mind my own business when in 2016 um, with the backdrop of the presidential election and the rhetoric that was coming out of that which was very hateful to immigrants specifically Mexican Americans um, the government of Mexico came up with this new policy that I guess was, you know, had good intentions of protecting workers, but in my case, it really backfired and, and put a really difficult choice in front of me. They wanted um, everyone who had any kind of visa to um, exchange our visas for um, diplomatic, which, you know, grants you more immunities and protections. But also in my case, I had grown up between my native Mexico City and different US cities following my dad's job, I had my green card and uh, I would have had to give that up and, and therefore give up my path to citizenship. And it was very scary because at that point, my husband who's from Colombia was in the middle of what ended up being his, uh, a three year wait for his immigration paperwork. And I was the breadwinner in the family. We were raising our one-year-old son, Lyle, who's actually right next to me, he's six now. <laughs> so if you hear noise, that's that's why. And um, so, you know, when we were confronted with the choice of, you know, continuing to be part of this beautiful country and this in the city or uh, keeping my job, it was it was tough. But my husband and I, you know, felt like Boston was the type of city that would have our back. And um, I'm happy to report that we were right. After my service at the consulate, I was lucky to be given an opportunity to work in City Hall. And um, I knew the the work that was being done in local government and found it to be a place full of hope, especially in the face of what was coming from DC, because I saw mayors, right, standing up um, to DC, both on issues of like immigration, yeah, which, which happened here with Mayor Walsh, but also climate and um, just a, a bunch of other, of other areas where local government became a beacon of hope. So for me, it was a very interesting and energizing place to be. I had an opportunity to work in the mayor's office for a couple of years. Ultimately, I was appointed to head up the Office of Women's Advancement for the city of Boston, where you know my proudest achievement was launching the, the portfolio of initiatives um, around childcare and dealing with the childcare crisis that now Mayor Wu has kind of rounded up and turned into a full-on office of early education. So for me, seeing my work solidified, expanded, and recognized as a model to, to, to grow has just been tremendously satisfying. Yeah, so that's how I initially got involved. Uh, once you're a city worker, you really become entrenched in your community. I would do, you know, community meetings at my home, trying to turn people on into city government and understanding the resources that are available to people. As immigrants, sometimes our mindset is not to think like, oh, I need help, um, let me call my city councilor. They might help me solve an issue that I'm facing. It's not the first place your mind goes because we come from countries where government doesn't really solve those problems that often. And it could be corrupt or unsafe or many people, including here in this neighborhood are fleeing, you know, government violence. So um, trying to build that bridge for people and um, letting them know that city government here is, as I said earlier, a place uh, full of hope, full of resources and, um, there, there needs to be kind of a bridge, right, to access those. I want to be, if I elected as a counselor, that friendly face that can welcome you to city government in your language, understanding your culture, and uh, make those resources available for everyone. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what I've done after my city government experience. I led a nonprofit in Cambridge that provides housing for women who've been through homelessness, domestic violence, or all kinds of trauma. So I kind of learn what it's like to lead an organization and uh, withstand those pressures uh, that come with being the person in charge of making a lot of decisions, sometimes popular, sometimes difficult. And uh, I think I can bring that, um, you know, outsider's perspective, but insider's experience to the role that um, is really important for the district. Absolutely. I mean, especially in um, a district like District 1 that encompasses East Boston, which is heavily um, immigrant communities. And as you stated, um, you know, um, that community of uh, the vulnerable populations are almost meant to deter from seeking government services because of that kind of like nature of fear of like, all right, well, if I advocate for myself, if I try to request this, 
all of a sudden am I going to end up on a list or if I mm-hmm. like, do a, say the wrong thing, am I going to be deported or just subjected to additional scrutiny? And we tend to design these systems to deter the most vulnerable populations from actually seeking them. Uh, so I, I think your story is very compelling in that, that you found some relief of hope within the city government. And uh, I know current district city councilor, uh, Kendra Laura, submitted an ordinance to allow municipal voting rights. Um, so exciting. For, yes, I was, I was going to ask, um, would you vote uh, yes or no on that piece of legislation? Oh, my God. Not only would I vote yes, I would champion that. And, you know, shout out to Councilor Lara, because that's what she made her maiden speech about. It was so inspiring. Um, we saw that initiative pass in New York. and why shouldn't we lead on that? People uh, people who are immigrants live in this community, are invested in this community, and they deserve that right. I know, you know what it's like to feel invested in the community but not be able to vote. And in my case, you know, before I was able to vote, I channeled my energy and my voice into volunteering for different political campaigns. I would volunteer, be making the phone calls, knocking on the door for the candidates I thought would be advocating for the policies I cared about. And uh, even then, you still feel the impotence of not being able to cast your ballot. Like, I remember the first time I voted in 2018, I framed my little I voted sticker along with my naturalization flag because it's such an empowering moment. And so for me, I would not only vote yes, I would enthusiastically join um, Councilor Lara's efforts in convince all my colleagues to vote yes and advocate for that Um really, really loudly because I know what it I know what it's like to be able to cast that vote and the feeling that it brings you. You you feel part of the community finally. Fantastic. I, I assumed that was going to be your response, but I just want to make sure I had you on the record. Thanks for asking. And um Let's see, so focusing um, on East Boston, some of the uh, problems that are specific to that area, about a month ago, uh, Michelle Wu made headlines saying that the city was gonna put off a large development plan of downtown and wanted to focus on the needs of East Boston. It's my understanding that there is not right now a specific kind of document policies in place that they want to focus on, but it was more a shifting of efforts saying, we need to focus on East Boston's development specifically because of some of the uh, challenges there around housing and climate. And so I wanted to ask, what would you like to see as part of that development plan in terms of, you know, should you be uh, fortunate, you're elected on the city council, I'm sure you'd be working heavily with the Wu administration to have that input and buy-in of what should a development plan of East Boston look like. So what are some of the things you'd like to say? Yeah, I was so excited by that announcement <laughs> so excited that I even wrote a whole op-ed about it in English and Spanish because I want everyone in this community to be as excited about this as we were in my team. So the municipal harbor plan kind of is is a it's it's a plan that cities are allowed to put together to ask for flexibility from requirements that come from the chapter 91 state legislation. Chapter 91 basically enshrines in law the principle that the waterfront and the coast belongs to everyone and not to any individual, right? Which is a principle that we hold dear um, and that we should always think about protecting. Now, how municipalities plan their own specific localities to respond to their own specific needs, that's where the municipal harbor plan comes into play. And it had been talked about in in Boston in the context of the downtown development and uh, you know big towers that were planned or had been uh, planned for um, for the downtown waterfront that you know weren't the best projects in terms of um, community buy-in and also in terms of resilience and so first mayor Janie made the decision to withdraw the the municipal harbor plan that Boston had put forth. Um, again, many neighbors in the area had said that they didn't, um, they there wasn't enough of a community process in the first place. So we welcomed it when Mayor Janey removed the plan. And then when Mayor Wu announced that not only uh, was the plan removed, but that the new plan that the city put forth was going to focus more on the East Boston waterfront. Well, that was a large, that was a big step for equity because What's been happening in our waterfront is that we are seeing luxury um, developments, luxury condo developments pop up left and right on the waterfront. And it not only lets like makes neighbors feel like they're losing access to our waterfront and they're feeling less and less welcome. It also doesn't do us any favors when it comes to resiliency. 
what we need on the waterfront is porous surfaces that can absorb um, not only sea level rise, but storm water and uh, that, that are flood proof and that can help us build essentially a buffer between our neighborhoods and the water as it encroaches. And so if we build luxury condos, that's not, that's not helpful. And they're causing or exacerbating a displacement crisis and gentrification that um, our community has been, you know, loudly um, trying to, to raise awareness about. So for me, I'm excited. I'm gonna be following uh, the planning process really, really closely and obviously advocating for as much community input as we can bring to that process because that's what went wrong with the first attempt at, um, at our municipal harbor plan. You hit a lot of the things that I was hoping you would, which is great. And I think the document is called Climate Resiliency Boston, maybe Climate Change Boston. Uh, it was written up in 2016 and basically under a, a massive guide for some of the most vulnerable areas of Boston of like, what should we be focused on? And one mm -hmm. of the things that is so striking to me was one at that time, um, a um, BPDA official said, oh, like, wow, you know, before 2016, we really didn't take into account climate change, which one to me is absolutely ridiculous. I don't think anyone can say that as an adult, you just heard of it for the first time, but maybe even more strikingly since 2016, since this document, we're still allowing luxury development and condos in the same area, still not following any of the resiliency measures that were written up six years ago in this document. And yeah. um, I mean, I... I don't expect anyone running for city council uh, to make the statements. I'm not going to hold you to it, but it's uh, ridiculous to me that we're still allowing development along our coast. And I would try to put as much of a barrier or buffer or to say we are not allowing any new development along our coastal shores where we know there's going to be flooding within the next decade or two until we are prioritizing climate resiliency. Whether that is marshes, whether that is dunes, whether that is berms, whether that is docks that are publicly accessible, that you can still have infrastructure, but can rise literally with the tide and lower them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interesting strategies of how to still use this space in a way which is for the public good. And as you said, not just luxury development. And yeah. uh, that might actually be a great segue for us to talk about housing. And so... There's a Can lot I just of say one thing on the planning stuff that you were talking about. So Climate Ready Boston came out and uh, we funded, we've implemented one out of the many projects that they recommend. And I think one from our activists and from our experts on climate, I've learned that the issue is that the funding streams that we are planning to rely on come from private development. And my plan's not out yet. I think maybe by the time we publish this interview, it will, and you'll see. But one of the things we're proposing is let's find a public funding stream for these projects so that we are not depending on whether private developers can or if it's profitable or, you know, climate change is coming no matter what. And we need to find a public funding stream. And um, the other thing I'll say about our planning efforts is that they're so siloed, right? Like we have climate ready over here. Then we have plan East Boston over here. It doesn't even include all parts of the neighborhood. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of Eagle Square. That's not part of the first phase that was uh, published around squares and corridors. So how can we integrate all of these planning efforts, put planning before development? Um, because if we keep on going the way we are, we'll have developed everything by the time we even finish the plan. <laughs> so I'm eager to see the chief of planning hired by the city of See if we can prioritize planning before we continue um, developing on, you know, parcel by parcel discussion. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. I'm just going to echo what you said so it's not lost on people, which is basically if we are going to have our funding sources be around the private housing and what we get off of really the, the market rate value of someone's property and says this is how we're going to fund climate change. And this is basically going to lock us into a system where the only projects that we're going to green light are the most expensive, which are going to cater towards the wealthiest, which is going to prioritize short term profits over anything long term. And so mm -hmm. if you ever want to change a system, you have to look at its funding structure. So I, I really appreciate you highlighting the need to switch that and to look at uh, public resources. And in terms of housing, um, you know, East Boston is at the forefront, along with some other communities of Boston, with the housing crisis, with the rising costs of rents. Uh, there are some basic policies I kind of just wanted to get like a yes or no response to, but you can certainly elaborate as much as you want. Mm -hmm. Uh, so where are you on the prospect of abolishing, or I'll guess I'll use the phrase drastically reforming the BPDA? I'm a yet excited yes on that. And uh, what I want to see happen is 
planning and development separated. And I want to see planning, as Mayor Wu is doing, come under the city of Boston and not under the BPDA quasi-agency, which is self-funded, because we come back to the funding structure. If planning uh, becomes accountable to the mayor, who's accountable to the people of Boston, then we're going to have a, pro a, a planning outcome that responds to the mayor and the people of Boston. Whereas right now it's under an agency that's self-funded. And so its incentives are lined up so, to develop so that they get money and can then expand uh, the reach of their own agency. It's, you know, I, I don't think there's any <laughs> maybe personal malice. There's just the incentive structure is set up that way. When we break it up, the city can plan and then the BPDA can develop within those constraints that the, that the people of Boston have um, agreed on. So that's why um, when, the, when uh, the mayor's plan came out back when she was a counselor, I read it and I thought it, it made complete sense. And that's why, you know, I support that restructuring of the BPDA with, uh, and I'm excited to see it start happening. Great. And where are you on the prospect of bringing rent control back to Boston? Yeah, I'm also in favor of bringing back not the same version of rent control that we had in the 70s, but the new rent stabilization um, mod models that we've seen, for example, come out of places like Portland, where we we control the amount that rent can come, like can increase yearly so that homeowners like myself can still maintain the properties and we are not disincentivized from keeping them up. We wanna make sure people are providing livable conditions uh, to their tenants, of course, um, and that they maintain the properties. But what we're seeing now without it is people speculating with properties and just, you know, like housing becoming, uh, a place where people park money, a place where people are, you know, kind of speculating and um, not be, being viewed as a commodity, a commodity and not as a human right. So I think rent stabilization is a piece of that puzzle. Taking housing out of the market is another piece of that puzzle so that it could um, become permanently affordable. That um, Those programs are, I benefited from myself, you know, when we were going through that tough time that I shared um, Earlier, we qualified for an income restricted home ownership opportunity that allowed us to stay in the neighborhood, you know, and I think the city increasing its affordable home ownership portfolio is something I'm looking at right now. 97% of the city's portfolio is rental and public housing, which obviously we should protect, but um, home ownership is what really can build wealth, especially for communities of color, immigrant communities. And, you know, it allows people to invest in a community in the long term. I would like to see those permanently affordable um, home ownership opportunities be brought online by the city or through community land trust or different models that exist out there. I would, I would certainly love to see it tied more towards a community land trust model. And just about every elected official who has run in Boston that I've supported over the last two or three years, including like uh, outwardly socialist candidates, normally have in some element of their housing page the increasing investments or uh, new pathways to home ownership. And mm -hmm. honestly, if I were to ever run for office, it would probably be there on my page as well. However, I am very, very skeptical in terms of that as a strong pillar of a solution, uh, a solution, mostly just because of its inability to work on scale, where the, the most successful home ownership programs that we have generally are able to provide maybe around 40 to 50, getting closer to $70,000 towards somebody seeking home ownership in Boston. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But then you still need to be able to raise $650,000, $700,000 to be able to actually afford the full cost. And so while, again, I am supportive of that as being like an element in the quiver towards uh, better housing policies in Boston, I'm always very skeptical of how much to be pushed that to the forefront. But I think that's part of a much larger uh, conversation. And you mentioned about rent control, and I think that's important too, because you know Michelle Wu announced her rent control committee, and there are some people who are fantastic, who have just been champions of housing. There are other people who are a little bit closer to the real estate uh, sector, so I'm curious how that dynamic will work. And ultimately, it'll uh, be about what type of rent control do they recommend. And to what you just expressed, I'm hoping they move away from the model uh, that we had, the model that is currently used in California and New York, where it's certain... Uh, apartments are income restricted and others aren't. Whereas you express it actually works a lot better if there's just a, a blanket ceiling 
that uh, of rent of, of rate of increase. This is like, no, no, no. I mean, there's some car, um, carve outs for when the development was made, but basically you cannot make it so you can raise by 50% next month. Like that's just unacceptable. Yeah, and that's what's happening to people. Like I've even heard of cases where people get $500 increases <laughs> from one month to the next. And, you know, that's just a tactic to get them to leave, you know? And um, it unstabilizes not only that family or that uh, or that tenant, but the whole community. I mean, I've talked to teachers who tell me like, you know, one, it, one student moves away, you know, their family's affected. But when you have a classroom where five students, six students are moving away, um, you know, you feel like the investment that you put as a teacher, let's say on building those relationships or the relationships that they built with each other, or, you know, as, as members of a community, you sometimes do rely on your neighbors for so many things. And when there's that turnover, you lose that community feeling that um, is so special to to Boston. So I think it's really important. And, and I agree with you on the on the model. And and just to, to comment on what you said about the members of the of the committee, I think it's important to bring people along. Um, I remember when uh, Mayor Wu was running and I hosted a house party for her. Um, my next door neighbors were were our homeowners, just like me of a two family. And they were very, before the talk, were very skeptical because they had heard, ooh, rent control, like if they do that, how are we ever going to make our mortgage payment? We rely on that. And after they had the conversation, they were all in because they understood that these measures aren't meant to hurt um, small homeowners, um, mom and pop homeowners. They're meant to target people who are speculating and large owners like corporations who are really taking advantage of tenants. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, as you, as you said before, the, the ultimate problem is the commodification of housing. However, th th that is not something that um, I expect the Boston City Council to change uh, in, like the, in the next cycle. But <laughs> uh, changing gears a little bit, uh, because this came up, I think, earlier this week and maybe last week, uh, going now, uh, moving away from East Boston, but now towards the North End. And this is about outdoor dining. Outdoor dining. Uh, which was, you, you know, uh, to me, one of the shining lights, as much as I don't like that phrasing around COVID-19, that we got creative around our public space, helping out uh, small businesses and restaurants and allowing them to use the parking spots kind of out front to expand outdoor yes. dining, to, to help with public health measures. I loved it. Seems like just about everyone in the city loves it, except for this one little neighborhood where there's a bit of a Correct. problem. And it seems like the, I guess, compromise is the word to use is that if you're a restaurant in the North End, you need to pay, and I think it's $7,500 um, into a pot, which is, I guess, going to be used by uh, the local community in some fashion. First, can you maybe articulate that better than I did? What, what, is the, what is the mindset or the intention? Why is it just the North End that has to pay this? And second, yeah. where do you stand on that measure? Yeah, um, you know, I can't... Uh explain the reasoning behind the, the decisions. Obviously, I don't work um, for the city right now. But um, yeah, the, my understanding of it is the restaurants are required to pay that fee to have the, the, to have the outdoor dining license plus um, an amount for each parking spot that they would be, I guess, taking up. Um, where I stand on it, that's easier to answer. So I, with you, agreed that Outdoor dining is welcome in the city and that people loved it. I'm one of the people who loved it. And um, it's a great fit for most of Boston. You know, like we want to keep it. We want to be supporting the small businesses. And it was an emergency measure that was put in place to help um, small businesses survive the pandemic. So it's a program that has been really exciting to see um, in place in the, in the city. Um, that being said, and with respect to the people that um, put together this compromise. I, I don't support it because I'm here to advocate for neighbors and the, you know, the residents of each part of this district. In the North End, I believe the program is not a good fit at all. And so I think the program should move forward in neighborhoods where it fits and not in neighborhoods where it doesn't. And specifically, it doesn't fit in the North End for a number of reasons. The North End has a very high density of restaurants. Right. And also it has very, very narrow streets. And also it has it's residential. People live there. And so what that means is that with outdoor dining, you would have a lot of tables on the streets. 
you have very narrow streets, not a lot of space, and you have, um, you know, cars and pedestrians and a lot of, you know, a lot of movement. And so it could be unsafe. We actually this weekend spoke with one of the restaurants who's um, opting out of the program altogether this year because last year they had a waitress who was bumped by a car. They had all sorts of safety concerns. And they just said, you know, especially with the fee, it just doesn't even make economic sense to them. I think there's a couple of restaurants that have a good space. Like if there's a plaza out in front or they have really wide sidewalk space where that could be a conversation just because it, it fits. Um, as far as the residents perspective, even before the outdoor dining, they always had noise concerns, you know, like just a lot of concerns around um, the small business activity in the area. Obviously, you have to, you live in a city, you're downtown, you have to compromise and understand that. But this was just too much of an impact in their day to day life. Um, so for me, I, I just think that the program is a great fit in many places. It's a great fit for East Boston, a great fit for Charlestown. Definitely not a great fit for the North End, and um, I'm advocating for you know the residents here. And um, I'm curious. That, uh, then I have a thought, uh, which is to maybe say I have a question than a comment. Uh, sure. My question is, your sense: How many of the restaurants in the North End want to have outdoor dining uh, without having to pay a fee, or are there restaurant owners that do not want this for some of the reasons you expressed? Um, I can't say I've talked to all of them, but I've talked to a good number of them. I think most of them are not happy with the fee uh, because they feel like it's unfair, right? Like other, other businesses in other parts of the neighborhood don't have to pay it. So why should we? And um, it's, it's a big number, like it's a big economic hit for them. So they feel targeted and um, they're obviously in disagreement with lots of the residents. So that's one piece. Uh, but like I said, there's others that are sharing that they had a safety concern. Now, the restaurants now are back to full capacity. And if you've been to the North End in, in the last weeks, you know, people are around. People are definitely dining in. And so I feel like we can, we can come back and, and the North End can come back even without outdoor dining. And like I said, it's just been too much of an impact for, for the residents. I mean, I, I, for one, I would love to see more outdoor dining in the North End. I do not, I am not running for office in the North End. So that's a very easy statement for me to make. And actually now I have another question uh, to get your input. And because I, I agree in some um, respects that it, to me, this thing of basic, the geography of the street, most particularly Hanover Street, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to have like every other restaurant have like a, a space and all the cars can dip in and the cars dip out. And so for me, it might be uh, like a little bit better if maybe on like the weekends, this particular side, you get Saturday, the other side gets Sunday, or maybe like a once a month special thing to extend, say, okay, for this one uh, weekend, the first weekend of this month for the six month period, this is all open. Because, you know, when I think of outdoor dining, I think of Italy, like I think of being outside yeah. European restaurants. And so it's always just a shame to me that our North End uh, has such resiliency to it, even though, again, I understand uh, from the community level, they want the parking spots. And I know that's a tough thing. And so this- um, And I think that there are, there is a solution to be reached here. I just, don't, I don't think the fee is it, but I think there are creative ways to get around it. And like I said, there's some, some particular restaurants that just have a space that's amenable to it that may work, but, but yeah, how can we find more creative solutions? I, I think it's I think it's doable, but we just need to have a little bit more of a conversation. Mm -hmm. And th this uh, topic makes me think of kind of some of the I mean, every district in Boston has its own unique pressures, depending on where it is. Uh, but like District One to me has some very uh, conservative elements, uh, whether that and like, these are my phrasing, not yours, in case anyone listens and tries to cut this out of context. Um, like I would describe the North End as having a little bit of an older, a little bit more conservative uh, demographic, some of the northern parts of East Boston, some of the nor northern parts of Charlestown. But then thinking of the other areas of District 1, again, it's heavily minority areas, heavy immigrant uh, populations that might be more vulnerable uh, to like more liberal or progressive policies. Are you already feeling that tension? like on the campaign trail to try to keep just these different uh, populations all kind of under one umbrella? Or is that, am I mischaracterizing District 1? I mean, 
At the end of the day, I have found that mo- the number one feedback for me has been that people want basic city services taken care of, right? I've heard of the rat problem for from the North End, from East Boston. I literally saw a rat last night. <laughs> it's really scary. Um, people want that taken care of. People want street, you know, cleaning, litter cleanup to be efficient. And um, they want the crosswalks to be safe. They want, you know stop signs installed or uh, stoplights where in unsafe um, intersections, right? So those are things that the district has in common and that people have told me they are very interested in seeing from the city councilor's office. And that's, uh, those are services that I want to deliver really, really effectively because at the end of the day, we all wanna be proud of our neighborhoods, right? Um, the neighborhoods are really distinct it, culturally and in, in, you know, in the networks of people that, um, that are a part of them, right? Like I don't necessarily see a lot of overlap or interaction between the three communities because we're separated by the harbor, by the water, uh, just geography doesn't doesn't help that. So, I mean, I'm very interested in exploring uh, things that could make the harbor more of a uniter than a separator as it is now, like water transportation that's frequent and affordable and reliable, for example. Um, but, this is what I love too about local government and uh, being just kind of at this closest level of government to the people is that those ideological lines or those partisan lines aren't as important as they are in maybe Washington politics. For me, um, each each neighborhood just has a different a different line of concerns or vibes, you know, like people in East Boston and Charlestown are very worried about overdevelopment or reckless development or unplanned development. How can we get ourselves to responsible growth and development? Uh, People in the North End in in Charlestown share concerns around schools and pathway to quality high school education, for example, as do people in East Boston. So it's just interesting to see the different topics that people care about. For example, outdoor dining is a big, huge thing in the North End, not as big of an issue in East Boston. So that those are more the differences that I have seen. And I'm excited to roll up my sleeves and, and work on those without just having a problem solvers lens on rather than a ideological lens. But at the same time, and I will say my values are what they are, you know, I, um, I care about equity, I care about people and, and that won't change um, no matter what. Great. And um, at the very beginning, I think the first phrase you used to describe yourself was uh, BPS mom. And yes. uh, you, you express you have uh, two little ones or uh, one who is in BPS, the other one aspiring. Do I have that correct? Correct. Aspiring okay. strongly. <laughs> and, so more than her. <laughs> uh, the Pioneer Institute, which has to be said, um, manages charter schools, I guess, came out with a study basically saying BPS should be brought into receivership. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you already, you already got to the, the answer for I asked the full question, uh, which is uh, for the audience, that's really a fancy way of saying that the, the governing of a public school system gets put under a different organization. And so I was going to ask, what are your thoughts on uh, BPS going into receivership, which you express as no? Um, Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, would you like to expand on that? Um, yes. <laughs> and if you have views where it comes to charter schools, um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Also, if you have any thoughts on who uh, the next, and I'm blanking on the uh, superintendent, superintendent. Uh, should be or where we should go. But if you would like to discuss uh, BPS yeah. education, please. I have a ton of thoughts on schools, so much so that that's the first plan my campaign put out. Uh, just a heads up next week, or I think at the end of this week, we will put our climate plan out. Um, flashback to prior part of the conversation, but for BPS, um, we did put out a very, very detailed plan because I have so much skin in the game. That's where my babies are. And so I experience the joys and the challenges of being a BPS parent absolutely every day. Um, Where to start? On receivership. We will fight that tooth and nail. Um, I've heard, and I'm very happy to hear that Mayor Wu is on the same page about that. BPS needs to do a lot of work to be able to deliver a quality education in every single part of the district and in in every neighborhood. We have to recognize that there are a lot of shortcomings, whether it be transportation or facilities or uh, even grade configuration. Uh, There are many issues, but you need to give the mayor and the new superintendent a chance to fix this 
the state cannot guarantee us that they're going to do a better job of it. They don't know the district. It's a large, large district with a number uh, of families and kids that have very, very high needs. Um, this is not like other parts of Massachusetts where the needs aren't so high. We have a large population of language, English language learner, a large population of children in special education and with individualized learning plans. So it's just a lot more challenging to do the job in Boston than it is in other places. And I don't think that the state has necessarily the experience that people in Boston public schools do. I've um, visited most of the schools in the district and I have personally seen the level of commitment and joy that teachers and staff bring to their work and to these children. But unfortunately, the district doesn't provide the support that they need. In terms of facilities, for me, that's my number one priority and where I would use the budget's new, the I'm sorry, the council's new budget powers to invest. We, an example, we had a school here in East Boston where we had the playground equipment be so old, like the wooden structure was so rotten that it gave in and it broke under a child's weight, a young child's weight, and this child was injured. And not only did one child get injured, BPS didn't fix the structure for like almost a year and then two more kids got injured in the same structure. And we are a community, like you said, like you talked about earlier, where people don't feel safe or, um, you know, they might be intimidated in going to government and demanding what's what their rights and what they need to have. In this case, um, the, the families tried to fix the structure themselves and like tried to come in and, and do that on their own where the district should be really responsible. Um, I visited a school that had a work order put in to clean up a window where like kids had thrown eggs at, at it. It took years to clean, that, to clean that simple window up. And so when kids see that, it just sends a signal of how much we value them and their education. And if we're not making sure that the facilities are safe, that they have proper ventilation so that they could, you know, learn not just through COVID, but through life. Um, I had a teacher share with me that starting in April, their classroom is 80 degrees every day. And like, how could, how can kids learn like that? And so I not only want to make the, like to make those buildings, like meet the minimum requirements, I want them to be green and sustainable and want to be like, want to be BPS the first place where, um, we can make the municipal carbon footprint, you know, lower or net zero. And so there's so much opportunity there to signal to teachers, staff, and students that we care about them, and we just haven't invested. Um, so that's in my plan. There's obviously a lot of investment that we need to make, especially now on students' mental health and support. Um, my husband, in, when he lived in Colombia, he was a high school teacher, and he always shared with me that Teachers are with students only so long, but when they face difficult family challenges or challenges outside of school, like poverty or like systemic racism and injustice, you know, you can only do so much. And so we need to make sure that we tackle schools along with housing, along with economic opportunity so that we can give these young people a chance um, at a thriving life. So yeah, that's, that's my rant on BPS, but you can definitely read my full plan um, at theriofordboston.com. No, that, that was a great answer. And I, I spent the majority of my, my professional career in public education. That's uh, what I have my master's in. I've been part of turnaround efforts uh, for a BPS oh, wow. school uh, here in Dorchester. And I mean, I can tell you what everyone who's done education research knows, which is basically, if you just look internally, if you just look at like, oh, how is uh, the local school system spending their money? You can maybe change 1% different outcomes. The big changes come from the actual background, neighborhoods, living environments of the students themselves. To, mm -hmm. That if you improve um, housing, if you improve food, if you improve infrastructure, that is where you see the gains. And you can look at a, uh, a school's SAT scores, and then I, I can tell you the average median income of the surrounding area. And so it is so much yeah. more about the neighborhoods and the challenges, as you said, the students face. And actually, and, you know, you brought up infrastructure. I don't have the figures memorized, uh, but I think it's something like one out of every five might have an updated HVAC system. Uh, the majority 
you, it's unsafe to drink the water. Uh, mm -hmm. A school in Rosendale I used to work at, I'd have to show up early to clean the rat traps and wipe down like the rat feces from the desk oh, before the kids man. got there. And it, it's just, uh, it's ridiculous to me, but it won't stop yeah. the Boston Herald from posting articles about how uh, much teachers get paid. Um, oh my goodness. We, we, yeah, we've seen kids learning in the hallways and teachers <laughs> having their office in the hallways. And it's, it's inspiring to see how much, like I said, joy they bring and their attitudes being so like, you know, positive, but, but yeah, I mean, we, we're making them fight in environments that are just like so discouraging. So yeah, I'd like to see more investment in that. And you're right about um, it, the holistic problem solving that we need to do around neighborhoods themselves. Uh, and I, I have two uh, more questions for you. Let's see if we can do it. And uh, cause I know you're very busy. Thank you again for being generous for your no time. Uh, I think just today, actually, the Boston City Council is holding a hearing looking into the Boston Police Department's use of what was described accurately as a secret fund of money uh, to pay for surveillance equipment to, uh, to be able to, I think it was track certain people's cell phones and things. And so that's kind of my segue into the uh, Boston Police Department. And I know one of the big issues right now the mayor is looking at is hiring a new Boston Police Commissioner. The two biggest mm -hmm. fights of the Boston City Council in the last years have been around the budget and how do we allocate our funding? And we also have the union contracts uh, still being negotiated. So this is really my way. I'm not gonna, I don't have any specific questions about, you know, do you stand yes or no on this issue? But where it comes to the Boston Police Department, what are you hoping to see from the contract negotiations? And what are some changes or reforms that you would like to advocate for if you're on the Boston City Council? Absolutely. Um, I'd like to see the overtime being taken, like being brought under control. And um, yeah, I mean, like more, more of a, more of an investment in non-police responses for, for different kinds of crises. And so I think even police officers don't want to be in charge of like mental health calls or that those types of situations. And that's going to be part of the negotiation, right? Like how can we divert some of those functions out of the police department and into maybe the public health commission? I can imagine. And, and I know council is not, not a part of that, but it's, it's kind of up to the mayor and that and the administration, but how can we have that? What What's likely going to be a tough conversation, right? Because both with um, overtime and just the amount of functions that they perform, um, you know, we, we do need to reallocate. So I'm, I'm looking for, I'm looking for a full discussion around that and hopefully um, the council being informed at the very least of those proceedings. And I think you expressed before, but some of the, uh, the new budgetary powers of the Boston city council, and I think I have this accurate that once the mayor submits her budget, um, there's normally kind of a performative act where they say no and it goes back and then she uh, has one-on-one -on -one conversations and then the mayor submits the budget and then they all pass it. Again, the last two cycles is the only time where it's really been an issue. But I, think, I think the new power allows if a majority of the Boston City Council decide to change the funding from one area to another, then if, again, if seven operate together, they have that ability. Do I have that accurate? I think I I see, yeah, and, and I think that the counselor should be going through this budget line by line to make sure we can find those places where there's bloat or where there's an opportunity for reallocation for more prevention um, to do that. And I'd obviously like to see issues that have been under the radar for too long, such as obviously childcare. It's, it's one that I've worked on for years, but obviously mental health would be a piece of it. Prevent, prevention programs would be a piece of it. How can we invest more in those? Because down the line, they're actually gonna be money savers for the taxpayer. And I, I think that's a good way of looking at it is basically the upfront cost now actually saves us and makes us money in the future, uh, especially yeah. some of the more conservative members of the Boston City Council. I would like them to hear that argument uh, just to get a better sense of how, uh, how money works, I guess. And um, <laughs> my one last question um, is Michelle Wu has also recently put forward an ordinance in front of the Boston City Council. There was a committee hearing maybe last week or the week before. Um, I spoke at it as well which would basically limit residential protests in a certain area where rather than being able to start at 7 a.m., you are not allowed to start until 9 a.m. 
And for some of the counselors, they think that uh, this is more than acceptable and okay. Other counselors have expressed uh, concern about a particular ordinance, which is restricted against a particular type of protest, uh, mostly because of the political environment of this one politician being Michelle Wu being subjected to this protest. And so I would like to hear your thoughts on that. And then which way would you be leaning to vote? Because I'm not sure if this vote would come up before or after, again, should you be fortunate and win. So again, what are your uh, thoughts on this uh, ordinance and which way would you vote? Interesting. Yeah, I've been watching the discussion because first and we have to say it, what's been happening to Mayor Wu is it's just absolutely sad and, you know, like just unfortunate because it's it is harassment and it is racially motivated and it is hateful. And, um, you know, just think about how the the Commonwealth of Massachusetts also had a mandate for employees and you didn't see that kind of protest happening in Governor Baker's house. And it was, you know, when it comes to Mayor Woods, just been relentless. And like I said earlier, just racially motivated and 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 just disgusting. So I I feel for her because it's it's not only affecting her, it's affecting her family, her kids. She has shared that um, that it, it wakes them up. She has a a senior neighbor who has, as she said, like earned the right to be able to sleep. <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't think, I think it's a really, really poor taste and it's help, it's hateful what um, these protesters are doing. I heard the concerns um, from counselors around this type of ordinance then being used to uh, limit freedom of expression or even criminalize people of color or other other kinds of protesters, especially with um, what we've seen, just like the treatment they've gotten, including from our, including here in Boston, uh, when in 2020 there were protests, we saw uh, abuses. So I am very sensitive to those concerns. I can't say I, I know how I would vote, but um, I think those concerns are really valid, you know? So. I welcome that discussion and I think we have to really be careful in how we in how we present ordinances that that are um, maybe kind of motivated by the particular situation we're seeing today, but that could have unintended consequences. Like I said earlier, you know, when when my my job was was passing that rule around me requiring a diplomatic visa, they were essentially trying to protect workers, but in my case, the unintended consequence was that I had to choose between my green card and my job. I'm sure nobody meant that, but it's just what happened. And so we, I think we have to be really thoughtful when we consider these ordinances. That was a, that was a great answer to say you're kind of right on the middle uh, between a, a yes or a no. Um, and at, at least for my, for my own thoughts, as sympathetic as I am to uh, Michelle's family and to the surrounding neighborhood, and as much as I absolutely hate the people that are protesting and the cause that they represent, it is impossible for me to support the idea that if you're a politician and you're being subjected to a particular type of protest, you can just pass an ordinance to uh, get rid of that type of protest that you are finding to be um, annoying, or regardless of the justification of it and again how bad the people are in their cause that's really just something that i can never see being a benefit but again that's a little bit more about my views than yours um i'm gonna ask you to stick around for one second but let me just okay. say thank you so much uh tanya you've been very generous with your time i'm going to release this after i uh, interview uh gigi and i hope this gave people a better understanding of yourself and the values and policies you champion. And one more time, when is the election? Oh, thank you, Evan. Uh, it was a joy speaking with you too. The election is on May 3rd. And if people would like to learn more about you or get involved in the campaign, how can they do that? Please reach out to us. We would love to invite you to get involved. We are at delrio4boston.com. Can I give out my email? If reach you... out. I'm at tanya at delrio4boston.com.